Autism Through Cinema. Welcome to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, investigating autistic presence and expression on screen. This podcast is brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project, based at Queen Mary University of London and funded by the Wellcome Trust. For more on the project, please visit our website, autism-through-cinema.org.uk and follow us on Twitter, at Autism Cinema. In today's episode, Ethan, Alex and John James tackle the terrors of the pod people in Philip Kaufman's 1978 version of the classic sci-fi tale, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Uh, hello and welcome to the Autism Through Cinema podcast. I'm Alex Woodison and today I have with me Ethan Lyon and John James Laidlow and we'll be discussing Invasion of the Body Snatchers 1978. Uh, Ethan, do you want to take the introduction for the film? Yes, I'd love to. Uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, this is the second of the four versions that exist. Uh, this came, as Alex said, in 1978. It is directed by Philip Kaufman and stars uh, Donald Sutherland, Brooke Adams, Jeff Goldblum, Leonard Nimoy and Veronica Cartwright. It's an adaptation, or rather perhaps an update, updating, of uh, the classic 1954 novel by Jack Finney called The Body Snatchers. In this version, uh, it's relocated to San Francisco, where uh, health, in, health Department Inspector Matthew uh, discovers that a number of people in his city, uh, including his colleague's wife, uh, sorry, his colleague's husband, are gradually turning into emotionless versions of themselves and seem to be acting in strange ways. He, uh, his colleague, and uh, his friends eventually discover that there is a race of pod people who are slowly taking over the bodies of members of San Francisco and with plans for world domination. And the film is about his attempts or their attempts to stop the, um, the potential takeover of Earth. So yeah, that is a basic summary of uh, Body Snatchers from 78. For warning, we will talk about the ending of this, so there are heavy spoilers all the way through this. Uh, yeah, uh, more spoilers than the Fast and Furious film. Um, it's, it, but the ending is extremely important to mention uh, here. So, Ethan, um, you also selected this film for discussion on the Autism Through Cinema podcast. What, what made it relevant to you in terms of our remit of discussing aesthetics and... Uh, representation and connotations of autistic presence? That's a very good question. There's a number of things which came to mind. Um, for reference, this was also my first time actually watching this. I'd known about it for a long time, but the original uh, Body Snatchers was one I originally considered for my thesis. But this, I'll explain why this one in a second. The overall theme of the Body Snatchers films is a conflict between a uniform collectivism and a unique individualism uh, with one attempting to prey on the other. 
And it falls in that McCarthy era of um, paranoia about large social constructs. However, it can also be read, I think, as a veiled narrative about the fear of neurodiversity, uh, especially the um, concept of emotionlessness, which is often a very unpleasant stereotype labelled at the autistic individual. However, <clears throat> I've chosen the 1978 version for uh, a couple of reasons, primarily because this is the first time we get the famous pod scream, which, for those who don't know, in this film, uh, the pod people communicate telepathically, and the way that they alert other pod people to the existence of normal human beings is to point their finger at the individual in question and scream in a very high-pitched tone. Um, and so it got me thinking about things such as autistic vocality, as well as the uh, concept of autistic movement, the uh, part of people in this walk in a very monotone, robotic manner. And those were things that interested me in particular, uh, was looking at a film which works in two different manners. One can see it as a film about the, as I said, the fears of neurodiversity and the fear of autistic takeover, for want of a better, for want of a better phrase. Or you could also read it as an autistic film about the fear of conformity and neuro, um, neurotypicality and the idea of complexity and uniqueness being erased. And that's a very interesting metaphor, which I feel is going to come up a lot in this conversation, as well as other elements about fear of the health system, the worries of um, psychiatry um, and other such sort of uh, subjects which have appeared every uh, in episodes that we have done previously. OK, so we have sort of three main threads there. Uh, we have the pod people as metaphors or as analogous autistic people. We have um, the pod people as perhaps a representation of uh, neuronormative hegemony. And we have um, the sort of controlling forces of psychiatry, the normalizing regulatory forces there. Uh, I mean, I, I, you know, you suggested this film, I was sitting down, okay, Where's, where's the autistic, autistic presence in this? And I was, I mean, I was quite interested by this contradiction between these two first assertions, you know, that the pod people are autistic or the pod people are neurotypical. And I couldn't decide all the way through the film. I was, I was thinking like, oh, I mean, <laughs> which one is this? These are totally contradictory ideas, but um, it did seem to land on much. I mean, if you start thinking about not so much the neurodiversity paradigm, but neuroqueering, suddenly um, it feels a little bit more like it leans towards this idea of neuronormativity and the regulation of other people's behavior and its roots in queer theory of like compulsory heteronormativity. I mean, but, but then the other thing that gives a real strength to the idea of um, the pod people representing autistic community is this idea of a panic about spread. Um, and that's sort of relatively analogous to the idea of the changing diagnostic categories for autism. I think um, back in like Craner's day in the sort of 
early or mid 20th century, it was maybe like, I think he was conceiving of autism as like maybe one in 10,000. And now the diagnostic categories are estimated to relate to one in a hundred, I think. So there is this idea of, um, <laughs> like, you know, ridiculous people in the nineties being worried about it spreading and, you know, not really engaging with how this works or, well, I guess they were engaging with it, but they were paranoid. And so that sense of paranoia of an invasion against, you know, the, the sort of the universal human as an individual, which is really an ideological position in the West. Um, yeah, I think that, that makes sense there. Um, but like I said, there's this tension between these two conceptualizations. I'm pleased you brought up that tension because that's something I'm very, very interested in, which is how we can view a film in, shall we say, a metaphorical light, but it not directly relating to one uh, one meaning. The, 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 the metaphor itself can be elastic and can take many, many different positions, even if they are uh, contradictory. And certainly I think... I think you can I think you can read it whatever way you read it there can be one reading which can be I won't say positive but certainly there's a there's there's a sort of a sense of um for an autistic person you can almost read it with a sort of a sense of if not you if if not unity then certainly a sense of disruption on both ends the the um the, the pod metaphor is a disruption, uh, a queering, if you wish, of, as you quite rightly put it, of common social interactions. So um, you, you can either look at the pod people as a queering in terms of they are a hive mind and they, they communicate on a level which is not experienced by the regular human beings and they act in a way which is thrillingly different in terms of the fact that they challenge social norms or you can look at the humans themselves as rebelling against a hegemonic system as you said um and and creating a a, a rebellion there although obviously that doesn't end as well uh sadly um, so there's, I think there's a lot of potential to have very interesting readings. And I think in some respects that tension is almost quite pleasant that it does not fit into a singular category and also would explain why the metaphor of the pod person in itself has survived for so long in so many different formats. Um, so the nineties one, which I saw recently is about military conformism. And the 2000s one with Nicole Kidman is roughly about the war on terror and international politics. So you get a number of different readings um, uh, there. And I think that's very, very interesting. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, something you said there about um, communicating through telepathy, uh, that sort of triggered this, uh, this idea of... Um, Oh, actually, okay. Well, let's let's jump into the pod people as neurotypical, and um, if we're in this sort of universe where all these people are communicating uh, in ways that seem invisible, 
does that then become an analogy for um, uh, the idea of missed social cues and things like that? Um, does that uh, offer a useful lens? That's something I was thinking when I was watching it actually this morning um, was how that you can definitely interpret it in that way in as much as the pod people share a private language that is impossible for the regular humans to pick up on and ultimately um, is what, I, which, what isolates them and turns them into victims of a larger system. So I, I certainly felt that that was a very strong uh, element of it. And I think as well, the, um, the, the emphasis I think on throbbing electronic heartbeats on the soundtrack as well gives a sort of a symbolization of almost an unintelligible language, a language which is shared by these beings uh, that the humans cannot simply grasp in the same way that um, yeah, the autistic experience of social cues uh, also, as you said, lacks, lacks a lot of those sort of smaller details and also with the same sort of metaphorical nightmare ending of this person is an imposter. And I think that feeling of sort of uncanniness and um, imposterish nature is very strong here, as was to the experience of autism. And um, yeah, I also picked up on the tension. Obviously, I couldn't quite resolve on because this is the first time I saw this film. I couldn't quite resolve, you know, is Elizabeth and Donald Sutherland's character, are they meant to represent neurodivergence in the system or are the pod people? Um, and it could it could definitely go both ways um, or both at the same time existing. But um, the, the idea of um, the pod people being some sort of hive mind almost, um, all sharing the same thoughts and conformity it's quite interesting that um, that fear of a loss of individuality that Alex mentioned earlier, um, it reminded me of um, sort of um, autism awareness campaigns from like the 90s and early 2000s. Like there's one, there's one really horrible um, advert on TV from Autism Speaks that you know, it's got this disembodied um, force of autism that's coming to snatch your child. Um, so that, that, that's what it reminds me of, you know, this, this idea that um, autism will take away your individuality. Um, and it, it does seem a very like neurotypical norm to be so focused on individuality, like, as if that's the the, the best thing. I, I don't know. Um, it it kind of reminded me of because I used to oh I still do love Star Trek, and there's there's um, a race called the Borg that are very similar. They're sort of they're a hive mind and 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 they infect people with cybernetics rather than pods and plants. But um, I remember thinking as a child, you know, that that sounds great. Like everyone's everyone's linked up. And they all have the same thoughts. There's no misunderstandings, no, none of this sort of hidden language that you can't understand. Um, yeah, so it, it also reminds me of that. Um, and the sort of 
the the querying aspect like the it, that could also go both ways because there's you know the way the plants are like one the pod people are one big family and they reproduce via plants not via um more conventional human means and um so there's there's that but there's also like the rebels form a small family at one point they're all in the same apartment and i think it's Leonard Nimoy's character as a psychiatrist he he brings up stuff about the dissolution of the family and um that's why people don't um that's why the family's falling apart because people aren't honest or don't won't stand for conflict and relationships and stuff um and he sort of convinces this woman who's quite distressed to stay with her husband, even though she knows he's a pod person. So he's sort of reinforcing those traditional values. And he does talk about a social disease as well. I think there's one line where he says social contagion of disease or something. So yeah, I definitely, I definitely felt like a, a, a tension and a conflict, but also um, maybe that speaks to real life. Like, neurodivergent people have been like we're the normal ones you're weird and neurotypical people or neurotypical um passing people being like oh we're the normal ones and, and you've got some sort of um disorder i'm really pleased you mentioned star trek on this one firstly for the reason that i'm a massive trekkie uh, i adore star trek uh, and secondly, because Leonard Nimoy, as you said, is in this, he plays the psychiatrist. And that was a very specific decision by Kaufman, apparently, was to put this figure who is often known for playing this um, figure of good into a film where he eventually becomes obviously a very, he's quite an insidious figure, even when he is himself, so to speak. He's quite an insidious figure in as much as he just simply does not listen to Elizabeth's concerns. He sort of brushes it off as like, um, I think he calls it a social flu at some point. And he's far too wrapped up in his own psychiatric gobbledygook to ever like really get to the heart of the problem. And it's interesting again, that uh, once again, we have another arrogant scientist like in Cat People who thinks that he can solve everything. Um, but yeah, I think you've brought up some really interesting stuff there on like a psychological, sort of a psychological orthodoxy and the idea of sort of, um, I certainly think pseudoscience as well, because pseudoscience plays a big part in this, which I think we'll get to later. But I think Alex wanted to say something. Well, I've forgotten what I was going to say, but I was thinking about Leonard Nimoy after you've uh, brought him up. Oh, yeah, I'm he... sorry. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think you're right that he's this incredibly insidious character, this sort of evil psychiatrist trope that we've seen elsewhere in horror. Um, and I think he's maybe one of the only characters that it's really hard to tell when he turned. You know, most of them suddenly have a totally different affect and present differently, whereas he... We really don't know. And what does that say about, um, you know, how his role functions in society before then? It's this person who cannot be read uh, in normal terms, someone who's manipulative and part of a sort of conspiracy that already exists to, you know, undermine what seems to be mostly women's accusations of problems in their 
relationships and him and him basically reinforcing sort of patriarchal standards and family values um yeah i mean he i think you know his big speech about the dissolution of the nuclear family seems to be about the sort of like paranoia of um the dissolution of society through women's liberation um it feels like there's a lot of similar anxiety in the film kramer and kramer um where uh, Meryl Streep uh, discovers women, women's liberation and, and that leads to a divorce and, um, and how that impacts the family unit. So, um, yeah, those sorts of tensions seem to be what this is more about in its sort of conception relative to the idea of communist uh, conspiracies. But yeah, I mean, I also really liked... Uh, this very iconic glove that Leonard Nimoy was wearing, this like leather glove that seemed to have no fingers on it. I think it was, um, you know, some sort of support for, for you know, we're meant to know that he's this prolific writer and Jeff Goldblum, and Jeff Goldblum can't get a sentence out in a year and he's publishing every six months. One thing about the, uh, I'm really glad you brought up the, the glove. Apparently Nimoy chose that himself for the simple reason that it looked really suspicious. And they were like, what's a great way to make this guy look dis- uh, really uncomfortable? Oh, I know, just a random leather glove. And it works perfectly because he is, you do not for one second believe anything he's saying. He is deeply untrustworthy. And it's ironic considering he was playing Mr. Spock, who was obviously the logical, almost, I mean, he is in some respects, I think for some people, he is the urtext of autism in television is Mr. Spock. Um, I know a number of autistic people who associate, have associated quite strongly with him. So I think, it, again, that's a really, it's a smart move as well. And it's a very it's sort of a real interlinking of that sort of neurodivergence. Um, I think you also, I, I hadn't thought about it in terms of women's lib or in terms of sort of emancipated women. Uh, but I, yeah, you can also see that in terms of like, um, the, the film has a very interesting attitude towards women in general, which is that they begin it's they begin as like these sort of almost hysterical, as you said, in terms of um, I think it's Lelia Gordoni's housewife who doesn't recognise her husband, uh, and nobody believes Elizabeth either, except um, to some extent um, Donald Sutherland, and then. Um, you know, by the end of it, I think it's quite notable that Brooke Adams is seen naked uh, when she transforms. And so she's this sort of sec, and she sort of beckons to Matthew uh, when she does transform and is in sort of in the bushes. And so there's, again, I think there's this very interesting sort of comment on female women as being dangerous in some respects, maybe sort of potentially either sort of hysterical or dangerous and I think there's something that could be said in there I'm not sure how you could link it to neurodiversity I guess I guess maybe something to do with sort of um intuition and how that's stereotypically associated with women um and um you know it's Elizabeth who uncovers that something's going on first and it takes um Donald Sutherland's character a long while while to um to believe her even though he, 
he sort of trusts her, but it isn't until he sees a body of a, of a pod person that he 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 he's convinced. Um, and and I think it's it's Nancy that finds the body in, that Donald Sutherland then finds, in, and she's the last person to she's the last character that isn't transformed that we that we encounter. Um, Maybe there's something there about that. I, I did. I did notice that Elizabeth as well. Sort of her way of sort of putting all the pieces together is very sort of pattern rec recognition, autistic trait or neurodivergent trait, um, and how how she put she puts together the pieces in a way that others don't. Um, yeah. When she does so, she's automatically shamed for it as well. She's automatically told you're being hysterical, you're being stupid. And ironically, at the end, she is right. So, yeah, I think there's a lot to, a lot to say there. But I think also something which I wanted to bring up as well is that, <clears throat> is I want to bring up that friend, the, the friend Nancy, who is, um, owns the mud bath, which is a great, great, uh, narrative element, which I don't think I've ever seen in another film, is, is these sort of bizarre mud baths. But there's also a very strong strain of like end of hippie era pseudoscience in there. So there, there's lots of talk about like uh, ancient astronauts and sort of alternative ways that uh, the earth has been, you know, earth was colonized, so on and so forth. And I think it's notable it's in San Francisco as well, which is this very liberal um area of the country uh hi historically so so i think there's i think i was wondering what your guys thoughts were on that in relation to things like neurodiversity uh and neurodivergence and i know john james you brought up that um autism speaks advert and we were talking about sort of the 90s distrust of autism so i was wondering if you had any you guys had any more thoughts on that i did note the the ancient aliens type um, um, conspiracy theory that was brought up because that, you know unfortunately that's gaining a lot of traction again at the moment sort of new age beliefs leading to to some sort of alt-right pipeline and people are getting very into that and that there are people online that believe that um, neurodivergent people are sort of star seeds or you know it come from come from another galaxy and that they've they've somehow come to this body so there, there might be a link there yeah i mean and there, there are a lot of sort of fringe beliefs around they're quite dangerous around treating autism as well um yeah i um i mean i that, that seemed just like one of the old tricks of like sci-fi and horror you know to have a character with lower status in the group less trusted less um sort of less respected um come up with the actual most accurate um description of what's really happening and then being dismissed as paranoid and it was it's you know it, it seemed like a, a bit old hat this sort of like mechanism for exposition whilst also um sowing mistrust amongst the sort of central cohort but yeah i mean one thing that stood out to me that um you know if we're talking about neurotypicality and how that intersects with uh, other systems of power like patriarchy and institutions. I was very struck by G. 
just how ridiculously inefficient Donald Sutherland was and his total faith in authority. You know, he kept on calling the police and the sort of government and they're like, oh yeah, we, you probably shouldn't tell anyone about this stuff. You know, it's really a bad idea. And he's like, oh, we'll give you a call back later. And they're just clearly like stalling him and he's totally susceptible to all these tactics. And it, I mean, it just felt like these characters, particularly the male characters with their sort of rational analysis are totally uncritical about what's what's happening and or not no maybe they're too critical they're too suspicious and too but at the same time they're unwilling to challenge their own belief systems about how the world is organized and they're just sort of not open to these different possibilities based on loads of evidence that's right in front of them um yeah presumably because they're so invested in the status quo it's notable that the first person that we see going under is a man. It's um, it's um, Elizabeth's boyfriend, who was played by the great Art Hindle, who, if you've uh, who, if you do know his face, you probably have known him in The Brood, where he plays Nola Carveth's uh, husband, Frank. And I think that's very, very interesting. Right? Uh, is that there is this sort of reluctance, I think, by the men in particular to sort of see outside the system. Yeah, you're quite right to see outside the system. Um, um, and I think in some respects, I think that's what Nilad Nimoy's psychiatrist does. He has created himself a system of thought and sticks to it obsessively and cannot see anything else apart from it. And indeed, the, I think the part people in themselves present, an present another form of that sort of system wherein they they exist in a single lockstep mentality um but the difference is is that their mentality is one that's motivated by a sense of unity and purpose whereas there's a strong sense of sort of dissolution amongst sort of the patriarchal system uh that like donald sutherland and nimoy and jeff goldblum to an extent in a very very funny little role um uh represent um, because a lot of their discussion is about the fatalism of the rest of the world and the fatalism of existence. Uh, and as John James said, that sort of new age stuff always pops up when a culture is in crisis of one form or another. And the late seventies was a very stagnant time in America. It's the end of, uh, it was past Watergate. It was past Vietnam, you know, those, uh, oil crises at the wazoo. It was a very depressing time, I think, in America, a very paranoid time. And so I think it's not surprising that these sorts of systems are viewed with distrust, but just enough distrust for these, that this other system to slip in. Next, let me ask you, well, actually, both of you, I was wondering to ask, have you seen any of the other adaptations of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, either the, the Don Siegel version or the Abel Ferrara version? And so, and if so, what did you think about it in relation to sort of this, into sort of this film? No, I've, I've not seen the others, um, but it made me think of um, They Live, and it also made me think of The Faculty, um, which is like a sort of teen drama version of this from, I think, the late 90s or maybe early noughties, where the teachers um, are the first to be infected by these sort of... Um, parasitic aliens and uh it's very much about 
sort of the old guard versus the new guard and, and mistrusting the authority. And then obviously they live is this body snatchers type mechanism. That's some sort of thinly veiled me uh, metaphor for consumerism and capitalism. Yeah, I, I think I, I've seen the um, the one with Nicole Kidman in, um, but I don't really remember it that well. Um, and yeah, it did make me think of the faculty as well, and I really wanted to watch that again because I, I really enjoyed that when I was younger. I confess I've actually never seen the faculty, but it's um, it's something which a number of friends I know uh, online have very much enjoyed. So I think it's something I probably need to get to. I know it has a young Elijah Wood in. Um, yeah, it's, but it's interesting, I think, to consider... I, I suppose I was interested in the idea of how these films have changed, as I mentioned earlier, uh, over the years. <clears throat> and I suppose my my question to you would be, if these films reflect various aspects of... Um, anxieties around cultural sort of cultural assimilation and um, loss of identity, what would a body snatchers of today look like and where would it take place? Which I know is a bit of more of a speculative question than we would be used to. But considering that uh, with the rise of neurodiversity and sort of the interests there in terms of celebrating that difference, how would a version of body snatchers today deal with that sort of subject, if at all. I can definitely see some sort of conservative group uh, building a narrative around wokeness and like uh, identity politics and like it's taking over people and they're becoming uniformed. And, and um, I mean, really, I mean, tribalism really is growing and it's, uh, and it's uh, obviously a bit of a scary time in that sense, both the polarization, but yeah, it, it does seem like uh, that might be the lens it looks through. Uh, yeah, when, when when we were watching it last night, I, I did say, you know, I, I could imagine a, a version today where um, they were terrified of the SJWs taking over or something. And um, But I, I guess it's a very strange time to make something about people being infected and... Um, and changing and, uh, you know, there could be something around sort of um, anti-vax or health advice that people are or aren't taking and stuff like that. I, yeah, I could see it going both ways depending on who made the film. I agree with you on that one. I think it, I, I think certainly in terms of wokeness and identity politics, you could, you could definitely see a very conservative, uh, take on the subject um, in the same way you could probably see a very conservative take on something like uh, the Midwich Cuckoos, which is another narrative about um, a, uh, a mass invasion by a group of sort of outer space uniform individuals. Uh, and that might be something to consider in just in terms of the, um, well, actually that is something to consider because uh, I wanted to discuss something about the fact that they're plants uh, in particular, and we were talking, I think John James brought up earlier, the idea of the plants being um, uh, sort of like, it's an alternative way of reproducing. And what interested me was uh, how you watch, in particular, when um, Brooke Adams's character, Elizabeth, is in the 
uh, is being cloned in the sort of the high bear in the the um, the uh, the greenhouse in her bedroom. Strange place to have a greenhouse, but I digress. Um, it reminded me a little bit of something like uh, the Changeling Child, uh, which is that sort of classic myth of uh, the Mandragora root, the uh, the baby being substituted for this horrific um, screaming. <laughs> uh, um, plant which then the mother was forced to take care of uh, in one way shape or form and you see that all through sort of literature you see it in relation to things like trolls and um, other less than pleasant things that take the place of children and certainly I've seen autism I've seen autistic children being described as changeling children in the past in relation to the Mandragora so I think there's something to be said there and I was wondering if you wanted to comment a bit more on the idea on the ideas of like these sort of like changeling there's the idea of changeling children and if you have seen something like the village of the damned how it sort of relates to there i just i just added the village of the damned as a suggestion for a future episode before we recorded this so um but yeah i did i did make a note of the changeling sort of mythology or folklore that you know um that someone has been stolen away and replaced by something that isn't is no longer human and that needs to be destroyed or or got rid of to to get the original back. Um, and I think it's I think Donald Sutherland says it, I've I've written down the line, but I don't know who said it. it was either Elizabeth or Donald Sutherland's character says it was something but not human about one of the pod people um, and so it's this idea of something appearing human but not being human like lacking humanity it's, it, it is a like it's a common narrative around sort of disability and neurodivergence that's existed for like hundreds of years um, yeah so I, I, I did note that as well and so that might be another way to look at autism in this film i think in some respects that that um that that sort of element of like um what you've just described as another way of looking at autism it certainly <clears throat> would add grist till sort, sort of grist to the mill of the idea that the um that the pod people themselves represent an autistic hive mind uh, rather i think it's fair to say i think it's less about it actually being an autistic hive mind and it's more about that sort of nightmarish idea that oh god they're all you know they all think the same oh god they're all going to come after us uh, so i definitely think that is a as a possibility but also i think the screaming is quite important here um because obviously with the mandragora route it's the screaming to a haha i'm different haha but here it's also another sign of a sort of a primitive response to difference and i think that's very very interesting in terms of how these figures detect what we see, what they see as undesirable or different elements, and their choice is to push back against them through the only way that they might know how, which is to scream. So I think that's another very, very interesting bit. Also, thank you for putting Village of the Damned on the list because that is a fantastic film. And I was also thinking about doing that at some point. So yeah, that's a really good choice. This is not necessarily a Village of the Damned related comment, but um, can I just say that, you know, the 
the invasion is complete and uh, successful and everybody's we, we sort of see donald sutherland in his uh office after he's learnt about um you know you can actually effectively pass if you um show no emotion and so there's this ambiguous thing as to whether or not he's pretending to be a pod person or he really is a pod person but he's in his in his lab with his colleagues and um i just thought god it's so peaceful it's so quiet i love this <laughs> and then you go outside and they're just walking around the city and it's the first time in the whole movie when it's just really really quiet and nice <laughs> yeah it really is when i when this is a bit of an odd one when it was when it was the pandemic <clears throat> in the in the throes of it i through through sheer force of circumstance i i, I had to take my brother to london for something <clears throat> at the chinese embassy and i remember going through london and there was no one around and it was so peacefully quiet and it was like the end of body snatchers it's just terms of there was nothing everyone was just very orderly and quiet and peaceful yeah, it was really, really nice. And I think there's, I think it's funny because people, because on the one hand, I know John James was saying this earlier about um, the Borg in terms of like, yeah, I don't see what the problem is. They all get to think the same. You know, they're all part of a hive mind. There's no miscommunication. Certainly there is something quite pleasant about that in terms of the Borg. Um, I mean, I've always been a very staunch person of you take away, I, I would rather die than people take away my own individuality. But even I could appreciate that, yeah, this is just really pleasant and quiet and just like kind of nice. And like, well, at least everybody knows where they're going now, sort of manner. So <laughs> it's, it's, a bit, it's a bit scary to think, would we want to be pod people? Um, or is it, or is it that simple a conversation? Because that's something I also was thinking about when watching the film was how, so as we see, we see these, these pod people growing as the, uh, their human counterpart is sleeping and when one wakes up, the other dies. And the, the, the new person uh, has, I think Nimoy's character says at one point, you know, you know, it, it, it's just like going to sleep, you know, you, you feel no pain, you feel no emotion, et cetera, et cetera. Which then needs to ask, how does the concept of consciousness work for these creatures? Is it still, in fact, the original human beings just with their emotions cut off, so to speak? Or are these, in fact, perfect replicants with the same sort of, works with almost the brain patterns replicated to the nth degree but with these little extra elements and if so how does that negotiate how seductive the pod people life is as well if you catch my drift yeah i mean this was making me think of um the idea of um okay so let's say that the pod people are, are metaphors for autism gone wild let's say um uh, a sort of autistic invasion. Um, I mean, in a way, it's a sort of reverse of the idea of, you know, supposedly curing autism. Um, you know, here we have, well, we have neurotypicals being cured of their typicality and uh, their, their sort of non-autistic traits. And, you know, the question is very much then presented, are they still the same person they were without these traits? You know, could you, and, and the 
the the metaphor is of obviously like the neurodiver- neurodiversity movement arguing that curing autism is akin to sort of ego suicide. You know, you have to become a different human um, uh, to sort of extract autism from a person. I, I guess as well, we could think about sort of um, coercive treatment and uh, especially, you know, with Leonard Nimoy's psychiatrist character as sort of almost like leading the pod people at certain points and, you know, forcibly injecting people. Um, yeah, so where, 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 does, where is the consent? Because, I mean, there isn't, but I mean, where, where it's a kind of a, a weird issue because after, after the fact, you know, Jeff Goldblum was like, oh, you, you, you'll love it, it's fine, don't worry about it. And so, yeah, it's kind of, didn't make me think is, because I, I, I haven't seen the other versions of this film or, or read the book. So is there a psychiatrist in the other versions? And um, is it, are, they, are they trying to say something around psychiatry and treatment? I think that in the... <clears throat> In the Abel Ferrara version, the 93 version, there's no psychiatrist. There was a doctor character who functions in a similar manner. He's played by Forrest Whitaker. Uh, he only has two scenes, but he's very, very good in both. And he offers, um, but he, he ironically acts as the voice of sense uh, as a foil to this, uh, to the sort of the main male lead, who's this in street, sort of very insipid EPA uh, health inspector. Again, a health inspector character, which I found quite interesting. Um, and he is the one who is the most passionately pro-individualism. Uh, not that that gets him anywhere by the end of the film, to be brutally honest. I can't remember if there is a psychiatrist in the 56 version. I know there is a psychiatrist in the original book, but his role is quite different. His role is more to like, give a potential reasoning as to how and why the pod people came to Earth. Um, so yeah, so I think that the, the, the Nimoy character is almost quite exclusive to this film and indeed sort of that reflects sort of that decade sort of ambiguous relationship with psychiatry and psycho and psychotherapeutic orthodoxy. I mean, this is the year of people like Foucault and, uh, Ardy Lang and sort of embracing difference instead of having it crushed by the, the, the monotony of, as you said, John James, the lack of consent, because there is no consent here. It's it's a forced takeover. Um, and it's why I never believe the pod people when they're like, yeah, you'll love it. It's you wake up, you don't feel anything, you don't fear, you don't love, which as a way to convince people to say you won't feel love is a really weird one. Um, yeah, I and I never believe them because I always think that that, that you, you are just, it's just a sales pitch. It's a really rotten sales pitch that you're making. And certainly the Ferrara version amps up that notion of that being a sales pitch. Well, it doesn't, they don't need to have much of a sales pitch. These pods sell themselves, you know, <laughs> they'll get you in the night. But um, I, I thought Leonard Nimoy was quite a muddled character in this because he seems to be part of this sort of new age um, uh, sort of revamped psycho, psychoanalysis. Um, and at the same time, he seems to be like 
espousing very conservative ideas around sort of nuclear families as well. So he's sort of, it, you know, the, the film, it, I think in context is about this sort of movement towards individualism and self-actualization that I think Nimoy's character is meant to be representative of, but at the same time is resisting and fighting against. That's very interesting. He is, I suppose he is a very, he's a very slippery character. And I suppose at the end of the day, that's what makes him so deeply un, disconcerting is because he is untrustworthy and his, his position is untrustworthy. Um, yeah, I can, I can also, it is, and also it's, I think it's noticeable that it comes in 78 where, you know, only a couple of years later, it's the 80s and it's a very sort of, me, uh, me, me, me decade and very self, self identification, self actualization, um, and sort of. And I suppose you could see it as a comment on sort of the, the end of the seventies distrust of togetherness and sort of the the big society, so to speak, and sort of a global, a sort of a, a unified society, which has been demonstrated as completely rotten, and. Nimoy's character sort of weird advocation for something similar is kind of like a, an ironic comment on that sort of impulse. So we started with this indecision about whether or not the pop people represent uh, autism or autistic difference or neurodivergence and, or whether it re represents neuronormativity. Uh, how do we stand after the discussion? You know, I'm really not sure. I'm really, really still not sure because I can see both having merit. I think I would still lean towards the, I think personally, I lean towards the pod people are neurotypicality and the pod people are a representation of my worst fears as an autistic person, namely, you're going to be put away, you're going to be conformed, you're going to be forced to be this very dreary individual. I mean, Art Hindle's character, let's be honest, Art Hindle's character at the beginning, for you, for those who have not seen, is a terrible slob of a dentist who, like, sits at home, drinks beer on his couch, and just like it's just terrible to his girlfriend. Nothing wrong with drinking beer on your couch, I'd like to stress. It's just he's just this obnoxious, sloppy mess of a person. And then when he changes, he's this sort of very eerie, sexless, always wearing an immaculate suit sort of figure. And there's nothing wrong with that in itself. But, yeah, I can't help feeling like he represents sort of a big mass of blandness, which sometimes I feel a society at large represents for me. So maybe I am more just sort of like, stay away from me, <laughs> stay away from me neurotypicals. Wouldn't mind though, as you said earlier, Alex, would not mind the nice orderly quiet though. That would be great. Please and thank you. Yeah, my, my initial feelings when I was watching the film last night were, were that if anyone was representative of neurodivergence, it was Elizabeth. Um, but perhaps the pod people are sort of a neurotypical sort of anxiety around neurodivergence, but actually it's sort of a mirror reflecting them back on themselves. And um, 
Yeah. So uh, I think if I had to, if I had to decide, but I, I, don't, I still don't think it's quite as simple. I still think there's that tension. Um, I did wonder if there was something we could talk about masking. Um, because there's, uh, is her name Nancy? I've said her name already. Yeah, Nan Nancy's character finds out that you can mask. Um, and, and if you hide your emotions, the pod people don't realize that, um, that you're not a pod person, that you're still a, a still human. Um, so they try, they tried to do that for a bit. Um, it doesn't go well, but, um, I did think it was interesting that Nancy being a woman and how um, conversations around late diagnosis and, and how it's usually women and, and non-binary people that sort of have been socialized to mask their, their emotions a bit more. Um, they, they, don't, they don't get diagnosed until generally a bit later on in life and how maybe maybe there was something interesting around there you know she discovers that masking is a way to survive but then again it's complicated because the pod people mask <laughs> they're, they're pretending the whole time as well so i'm really glad you brought up that little bit with um Veronica Cartwright's character going, just, what is it? I've I wrote it down. It's just, she just says, hide your feelings. And I just felt, yes, yes, this is what it feels like to have to be neurotypical for a little bit. You've got to walk in the crowd and just not show your expressions and not look at all the things. Uh, yes. So I think that also probably leads me to thinking that um, the, the pod people are more a neurotypical horde because it's about crushing that, distinct emotionality which i feel so strongly so yeah i think the masking is a very important element of it and the gate as well being quite important in terms of how they walk is different and it's it's lockstep it's uniform and that's you know as much a representation of their nothing their sort of singular identity as anything else all right brilliant so we've finally worked it out <laughs> it's the neurotypical horde <laughs> um Anyway, uh, I okay, John James and Ethan, thank you so much for joining uh, for the podcast this week. And we will be back again soon with another episode. And remember, guys, they're here already. They're here already. You have been listening to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project from Queen Mary, University of London, and The Wellcome Trust. Big thanks to Leverett Jakes for editing this episode. Our theme song is Waterfall by Meter, used under a Creative Commons attribution from Null Teal Records. Follow us on Twitter at Autism Cinema and find out more about the project on autism-through-cinema.org.uk. If you have any feedback, comments, or suggestions for future episodes, please do get in touch with us on cinemaautism at gmail.com. Many thanks for listening.